Hi everyone, I'm Belinda Ongaro, and you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR in Edmonton. For those of you who've never tuned into Shout before, every month we pick a topic relevant to librarianship and information studies. We're a group of Masters in Library and Information Studies students here at the University of Alberta, and every month we bring you fresh, exciting library and information studies-centric news. We haven't recorded anything in a hot minute. Is anyone else experiencing COVID fatigue? Anyway, we figured we'd compensate for our lack of ambition these last few months by bringing you an episode that's all about newness, specifically the new and improved Stanley Milner Library. Some of you may know of it as the Think Tank, as it has been so lovingly coined for its interesting exterior. But today we go beyond the exterior. Timothy braved the crowds equipped with a mask and a bottle of hand sanitizer, of course, to ask some streeters what their thoughts were on the renovated spaceship, I mean library. Take it away, Tim. Um, could I get your full name? Renaud Lissar. So we're here at the grand opening of the Milner branch of the library. Can you tell me what do you think of the building? Well, at first uh, I was shocked because I expected something really fantastic from the outside. Of course, I haven't been inside. I suspected that the inside would be stunning just by the shape of the building. And I've seen pictures on the internet, it, it looks stunning. But from the outside, I think it's a big miss. It's flawed. And um, they said, oh, it's going to be zinc, you know, and zinc is the latest fashion. But I mean, it looks not nice to me. <laughs> but just a moment ago, I was in front of it, just smack in front. It looked good. But if you just go around the building, it just stands out as not a nice landmark but uh, of course the library is all about the inside the knowledge and so inside I have no doubt that it's fine but outside it's just not great compared to other buildings in this city or other libraries around the world and it's just not not stunning you know for the same cost I think they could have chosen something stunning it looks like a ship yeah not really a library, not something that would draw people in, for sure. From here, no. Can I first get your full name? My name, I'm Glenn Grinder. And what are your thoughts on the new building? I think it's super. Uh, happy to pay my taxes to see this sort of space for the citizens of Edmonton. Uh, have you read any sort of the press leading up to the opening of the library based on the exterior? People were criticizing it saying it looked maybe hostile in some way. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, I thought about a year ago when it first started, and the first time I saw it downtown, I wasn't real impressed with it. But now that I've been inside, see what it looks like inside, that's, that's gone away. I, I think it's a great building. So this is not only the reopening of the library. In a certain sense, it's also a partial reopening of public space. Do you have any thoughts on the importance of that for people? I think it's important. Uh, I think in particular it's important to have spaces like this because with winter coming uh, we're going to want to be able to get out of the house and once it's cold it seems to me there are lots of places in here, lots of room to gather things, tables, chairs spread out so it'll be possible for people to come down to the library and in the dead of winter and as I say get out of the house and read some new books. Uh, could I get your full name, please? Janet Sims. 
And what are your thoughts on the new building? I think it's fantastic. I've been down to Calgary and seen their new library, and I know when they unveiled this, there was a lot of controversy about it being too stark and, and all. But I am so impressed with it. You know, we were, we were up on the second or third floor, and the view looking this way is so sensational because you've got the Windspear and the Art Gallery and City Hall and uh, Winston Churchill Square and CBC and uh, everything right here. And I just think it's going to add so much to the city. Could I get your full name? Uh, Jeslyn Williams. So you've just done a tour of the uh, newly renovated Stanley Milner Library. What did you think? Um, it was very strange. Um, the outside of it looks like a spaceship um, and the inside kind of has this very very sterile feeling as well. It doesn't really feel like much of a, a library, at least my experience with libraries. So what would you um, hope for or expect from a library that it doesn't offer? A more comfortable atmosphere, something that feels more accessible, I guess. Um, there's something going on inside that seems very um, oppressive in a way, I guess I would say. They, uh, I think they were very intentional about um, the way that they, they chose their colors and uh, the design, and I think that they're trying to make it very like vibrant, but also they've tried really hard to go like the accessibility route, and you know, it kind of ended up in going in the opposite direction where it almost just feels condescending in a way, which makes it less accessible. Um, that would be like my overall impression of the library, yeah. So could I get your full name, please? Zard Sarti. I uh, was trained as an architect. Subsequently, I became urban designer. I'm one of the builders of Mill Woods. And I used to know the old library. And now this new, beautiful uh, interior, particularly beautiful library, replacing the old one. And you may want to know my opinion of the interior. It is definitely exquisite, in my opinion. Many, many very large vistas and spaces that really captures your imagination. Various functions very cleverly distributed throughout. Appears to be that uh, many, many spaces that a visitor can occupy and amuse themselves and educate themselves make exchanges, it's uh, very colorful, very bright, so it gets my endorsement on uh, reservedly. I used to uh, look at the uh, outside structure and outside look of the building, and I was not much impressed with outside, but heavens, they have done miraculous work for the inside. It seemed, it seemed your, your praise of the exterior was somewhat more reserved than your praise of the interior. You heard some of the criticisms, I'm sure, about uh, people saying the library resembled some sort of military machine or something along those lines. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Do you think those criticisms are deserved? I haven't heard too much of a specific critique of the exterior of the building, but we're just driving around and being in the city, and I was not impressed. But in architecture, there's a theme that uh, interior and exterior are two different separate uh, matters, and one has to uh, judge them separately. 
and uh, the interior sometimes with some architects trump the exterior and this is one of those buildings the interior has been so elaborate so successful so thoughtful so relevant so usable that the exterior could be sacrificed and maybe has been sacrificed but who cares for the exterior so you're saying perhaps um the exterior was sort of constrained in its design based on what they needed to do with the interior. Well, going with the theme that I just suggested, that with some architects differentiate, for example, the uh, uh, music hall in Berlin is one of those buildings. Uh, it's been around for about 20, 30 years, and, and talk about it is, but don't look at the exterior of uh, the music hall in Berlin, go inside then you will be absorbed and entertained and it is an excellent interior. An architect of that building always spoke about the fact that he was focused on the interior. So given that theme, this building fits that category of buildings where interior is given due consideration, elaboration, design, details, exterior may be sacrificed. I heard the architect for the building was talking about how the vision was sort of that the building is reaching out sort of off axis towards the people to welcome them in. Do you see that happening? Yes. We, we saw spaces specifically designed for minorities, for the average Edmontonian, and with people exquisite taste. So they're all included in that. All right, so to get things started, uh, what's your full name? Justine Mejo. Were you following any of the press prior to the opening of the library about uh, people's reactions to the exterior of the building before they got to see the interior? Uh, yeah, I'd seen some of that. As people were comparing it to like a tank or something, some sort of military machine. Do you think that those criticisms are warranted? Well, from the outside, yeah, but from the inside, it's not as bad. It's really bright, like very, a lot of white a lot of open space and high ceilings, and it doesn't give you the same sort of claustrophobic feel that you get from the outside. So this is kind of like not only the reopening of the library, but in a sense also the reopening of public space in a way, or, or an effort to do that in sort of a limited way that we can. Uh, how important do you think those sorts of spaces are? Oh, I think it's really important. I mean, actually, I witnessed a couple interactions of the staff with some more marginalized populations of Edmonton while I was in there, and it was just nice to see how positive those interactions were and how helpful the staff were in trying to assist people who didn't have a home to get a card so they can access some of the library resources. So I thought it was fantastic that that's downtown again and available for everyone's use. Thanks, Timothy. Great to hear from Edmontonians with such diverse perspectives. I also had the pleasure of checking out the new Stanley Milner recently and was blown away by the incredible community space that they've created for all Edmontonians. There's so much potential, not only for consuming knowledge and accessing resources, but to create and share new knowledge and experiences. From the Indigenous gathering space, complete with ventilation for smudging, to a decked out gamer space, EPL truly nailed it with this one in my humble library student opinion. Something that has redefined libraries in recent years is makerspaces. Dan sat down with Holly Arneson, the associate manager of the makerspace at the Stanley Milner, to chat about the marvelous things they have to offer. Here's Dan. 
This is Dan with Shout for Libraries on CJSR. I'm sitting here with Holly Arneson, the manager of the EPL Makerspace, to discuss the opening of the Makerspace at the newly renovated Milner branch. So, Holly, I think it might be said that over the last few years, the main constant for you and the Makerspace has been change. From the old Milner to three different locations within Enterprise Square, to the expansion of the Makerspace project, to other branches in the EPL system to everything obviously being interrupted by the pandemic. In the library world, it is often said that the institution itself is experiencing a crossroads defined by transformation. How have you found the Makerspace fits into this overall context of transformation? Thanks, Dan, that's a really great question. Um, you're right that there has been so much change as we've driven forward towards launching a brand new Makerspace inside the Milner building. And we have sort of, as we've worked towards that, the planning process, the preparation, um, everything from sort of the staff training and the recruitment processes to the tool selection, and then also designing services around these tools. It's been really exciting to be involved in something that's constantly growing and constantly changing. We're constantly sort of listening to both what's working well from people who are currently in our space. We're also always keeping an eye out on both the local community and then also the broader global community about what we might change, what we might um, enhance, what we might expand, and how we can serve the community in new and different ways. That's been the process and what that's looked like in terms of that transformation carrying out is moving from both different thresholds, so offering service at one location, changing to a service at a different location, adding in a preview of a service that's coming down the road or trying to, you know, get ready basically by testing um, little projects, working with members of the public or within the team and really moving along to get ready all along to expand into something much bigger. Um, the Makerspace has probably been in planning since at least 2014 or 2015 and the library itself has been under construction for three years as well so a long road and I think an exciting result is what people are going to experience. So speaking of that process how would you say the new Milner makerspace compares with the old makerspace either in specifics or within an overall vision? What are some key differences? So some of the key differences in the new makerspace compared with the previous makerspaces at the Milner or at the Enterprise Square locations are that we're offering a lot more opportunity for people to really get hands-on with the technology. So an approach that we've taken in the past to remove barriers um, to, to accessing services like 3D printing is to essentially run a model of people submitting their prints and then you know the staff work with them on those prints if they need changes or adjustments and then essentially producing that print for the customer. The big change that we've undertaken is to look to see how we can put that customer into the driver's seat of that hands-on learning process. So one of the differences as an example is with our 3D printing service we're moving towards a self-serve a process where we're looking to train that person who walks into the library 
um, with safety information, with basic 3D printing design principles, and with the principles and safe operation of the 3D printer itself. And then we're looking to have them operate that with supervision of the staff rather than the staff operating that um, for them on, on their behalf. Um, it changes what staff are doing day to day, but I think it's a much richer experience for everybody involved. We're providing more structure around the studio services. That's another difference. Again, there's going to be a similar kind of training and certification process. And the goal of those things is to really make sure that we're having a conversation when people are wanting to sign up for that for the first time. We're understanding a little bit about who they are as a person, what they're hoping to learn or get out of the experience. And we're also able in that conversation to share, you know, what our expectations are, what the safe operational guidelines for the equipment are, and really establish that connection so that they know that they can get help if they need help. So we're putting a little bit more process into place around how people are accessing the different services. The other thing that's really changed um, and is exciting is we've taken some of the things that have worked really well in the past and we've just provided a more um, purpose-built and intentionally designed version of them. So previously we were working in non-purpose-built spaces for our studios or working in prefabricated booths. Now we're working in a purpose-built acoustically engineered space and I think we'll be able to offer a really great experience for people and provide more opportunity for that scaffold from the person who has maybe always wanted to learn how to play an instrument to the person who used to be a recording artist a few years ago, um, hasn't done it for a while, wants to get back into it, or the person who's just looking for access to that equipment because they don't have the means. So we're just, in some cases, we're offering something that's different, that's more, and that's a little bit more um, polished or structured than we have in the past. Another huge difference is the technologies that are being offered. So we've incorporated sewing and sewing is something that we made available through one of our branches. We received a really positive community response and we see so much value in how it takes a traditional craft and a traditional technology and it it interplays so well with the design thinking skills, the problem solving, the sequencing, um, and even the mechanical and spatial aspects of planning and assembly. That fits in so well with other things that are happening already in the makerspace, access to vinyl cutters, um, access to 3D printers, and even learning to code programming. So the sewing service is something I'm excited about. And then there's a group of services that will be offered eventually in our fab lab. And those are really getting into, again, more kinds of making, more kinds of fabrication and direct hands-on access. So adding things like a laser cutter, a CNC mill um, for milling out designs from wood, um, adding a, a more manual bookmaking process where the customer will be able to actually make and assemble the book with staff support and as well some light woodworking tools for the first time to support their people's use of the CNC mill. Um, also introducing some of the basic planning processes and um, um, essentially ways of working it towards a basic design with tools like the drill press and the scroll saw. So these are brand new. They've required us to really 
learn a lot about safety and about um, what's required uh, from both a training perspective, from a procedural and documentation perspective. But it's something that I think will bring new people into our space. It will extend people who visited us before. It will extend their experience. And I can't wait to see how people will make use of those services once they're fully up and running. It sounds like a lot that's going to change. If you had to narrow it down, what is the one thing out of all of that that you're most excited to see a public reaction to? I think so far, just from even working with other staff inside the system, and, and we're just speaking a, um, a day before we really get open to the public, the most exciting reaction that we've had so far, I think, is to the studio lab which is a new service that we'll be introducing um, probably later this year. Uh, we don't have a set timeline yet because we've had some uh, manufacturing and shipping delays on components for that space. The Studio Lab is a flexible black box theater space. And it's, an, it's in some ways an expansion of our studio services, but in some ways it's quite a new thing in its own right. In the past in our studios, we've had people who have wanted to um, do video work, they've wanted to do photography work, and it's been tricky for us to support them in that in the um, other facilities that we've been able to offer. The Studio Lab is a purpose-built space that will have a lighting grid, it will have tools like a high-definition video camera, um, tools like um, curtains and chroma equipment, and I have to tell you, Dan, that when we open the doors to that space and we show it to people, I've had audible gasps that, it's, that we're offering it and just at the impact of that space as well. So again, that's one that we're, we're working towards getting it up and running um, still, but I'm really excited to see people's reaction to it. I'd say the other space where we've had pretty amazing reactions is when we've shown people so far the fab lab um, and just the range of tooling and the, the possibilities in terms of the media that they can work with um, showing them how they can work with both you know laser cutting something into wood or etching glass um, i get kind of a stunned silence at times when we walk people through there and show them what the possibilities are uh, Marty Chan recently said that, you know, he, it's like shop class in the middle of the library. And that's, that's kind of, I think, going to be something that really surprises people to discover. So let's zoom out a bit. We've talked a lot about making, but let's talk about making the makerspace. What are other, what are your influences? Are there other makerspaces that you take inspiration from or are you mainly focused on figuring out what the local community wants? So it was definitely a combination of both. Um, both approaches were taken. So I believe I may be misremembering the year, but not long before the branch was closed, there was a community consultation process that occurred. And we collected a lot of feedback from the public about what they wanted to see in the new makerspace. And things like fabrication equipment like CNC, a laser cutter, um, access to soldering equipment, access to places to make art, um, access to you know, video, more video spaces for video work. Those are all themes that emerged from the
the from the community consultation. Cooking also emerged as something that people wanted to do at the library, and um, down the road we'll be introducing a teaching kitchen space. Um, I've jokingly suggested that it be called the Baker Space. We'll see. We'll see what it ends up being called. Um, but so the community engagement that really was a, a core piece of us listening to what people wanted. Um, people took that that opportunity to tell us as well, like what what they enjoyed already. Through that process, we also heard about um, how successful the gaming services that we had been offering out of the makerspace at that time had been. And that led towards a new gamer space for the new Milner Library, which I think people will be really shocked and excited about in terms of its scope and also how amazing and exciting it is in there. Um, in terms of other other spaces that we look to, there's a lot of really great work being done in Canada across the board. Like in Toronto, they have uh, fabrication studios where they're offering access to sewing machines, button makers. Um, I believe they may even have embroider CNC embroidery machines. Um, so similar tool sets to what we're offering uh, with a few differences. Um, Vancouver as well is offering access to sound studios. Calgary has them as well. So that's something that's really taken off inside of Canada and is, is being brought on in different communities. Um, I also give a shout out to the Innisfil Public Library in Ontario. They really early got into that, you know, providing access to more of these light fabrication tools and really using sort of a community, a community process of um, looking for ways that community members could um, participate and even lead in that process, um, working alongside staff. So they've done some pretty exciting work as well. In terms of my professional library crushes on a global scale, two that I'll highlight in particular are the Lawrence Public Library. Um, they have a sound and vision space for um, studio and video production. And they have an amazing synthesizer as well as part of their kit. Um, they've done a similar approach to us in terms of trying to provide these flexible spaces for people to make music, to do voiceover, to do video work. Another one that I'll highlight, and I haven't had a chance to visit it yet, but I sure hope to, is the Boulder Public Library. Um, they have a build, it's called BLDG 61, Building 61 Makerspace, and it's primarily focused on... Um, well, I shouldn't say primarily, but one of the things that's really stood out to me is their uh, inclusion of woodworking equipment. Uh, they have a laser cutter as well and a really strong emphasis on sewing machines. And so I've been looking at some of their um, class and event offerings. Um, they have like a sewing rebellion that happens um, every so often. Um, they have repair cafe programming and just in terms of how they're also working with the local community and um, looking for ways to feature in exhibition community work, I think that that's a really wonderful approach. So those are some of the those are some of my professional crushes, as I call them. Okay, well, it's like you said, it's a day before opening. It's a really exciting time, and kind of the elephant of the room is that currently we're undergoing a pandemic. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about what service in the makerspace will look like in the context of COVID-19 directives. 
That's thanks for asking that, Dan. Um, that's a really good question, and it is it is definitely not the world that we thought we would be launching this into, and as a result, it's not the it's not going to be the launch to the extent that we had originally planned. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about what our approach is going to be. First of all, I think it's really important to just say that um, with this, there's really great work that's been done at EPL around. Um, the safety procedures, like there's really great documentation. Um, there's been a really strong effort to make sure that there's the appropriate PPE, there's the appropriate um, hand sanitizing equipment available. So that the safety aspect of this is top of mind. Um, the organization has also applied the AHS guidelines around capacity. And one of the things that I think will really be um, quickly noticed by people is that our spaces and our services are not going to be operating at full capacity. So as an example for the makerspace, our limit is around 20 people for in terms of how many we can have in the space at a time. Um, and we have additional capacity for staffing, um, but it's not too far beyond 20. And so this means that we have to be pretty strategic in terms of providing access to services that people know and love already in the makerspace, but also providing access to things that align with what we had envisioned for this new space. So as an example, um, a couple of the services that we'll be operating right off the hop are uh, our creative computing. We're going to have four creative computers available. We're looking to introduce access to at least one studio to begin with and then to expand um, as that's proven to be manageable. Um, our vinyl cutting and heat press uh, uh, services will be available um, very immediately after launch, like in the week, uh, the week following launch. And our, our intention as well is to introduce 3D printing as a service in uh, mid-October. Finally, we're going to, we, we're not able to operate the Fab Lab fully at this time, but we will be, we'll be providing preview access to the laser cutter in the form of design workshops. So in those workshops, the staff member will introduce a really small group of people, probably like no more than three people at a time, all physically distant, um, you know, all using hand sanitizer before and after touching equipment and following the procedures. Um, but basically guiding those people through a design process and um, helping them to produce something um, on the laser cutter within the context of the workshop. So we'll be introducing different media like cork or glass or cardboard or um, plywood and helping people in that way. And so that's the, that's the, initial, um, the initial extent of our offerings. And then as we find success, which I'm positive that we will, We'll look at expanding access to those services and then to adding in some of those other new services that I mentioned. Sounds really exciting, even in spite of COVID-19. I just wanted to ask you whether your experience during the pandemic, either personally or professionally, has informed your views on the role of makerspaces or of libraries in general heading towards the future. It's been, yeah, it, that's a really good question. And I think it's been such an interesting time. And, and it's definitely been challenging for everybody, no matter who that person is or what situation, you know, whether you're a member of the public who didn't have access to the library physically for several months 
or you're a staff member um, who is in a temporary layoff situation or you're someone who worked through um, or you're you know a family member a concerned family family member for you know looking at just the school relaunch i think there's there's so many challenges that have happened so quickly and i think to me what's been really interesting is some of the skills that we look to build in when we're putting people into contact with some of these makerspace technologies the skills of problem solving the skills of flexibility, taking concepts from one area and transferring them to another from that digital literacy perspective. Those are such core skills in terms of being able to respond quickly to change. And even though there's a lot of emotional load that goes into that, and that it can be scary at times and at other times exhausting, I think that one of the things that I've been so amazed about looking around at my colleagues and, you know, my colleagues broadly in the sense of our community in Edmonton is how quickly and how professionally and um, thoughtfully everybody has responded to this and how everybody is still trying to make things better for one another, even in the light of a situation that has felt very unstable at times. Um, people have just responded so quickly and um, even here, you know, we switch suddenly to working from home or we switch to only doing online training after never really trying it before. And I know a lot of people in the post-secondary context are in that situation too. And just to see people overcoming and um, finding new ways also when things, when the way of doing things before is no longer available to see the innovation that's happening out of that. Um, it's bittersweet, but it is, it does, it's a cause for hope. So I think it bodes well for library land. Bittersweet, but a cause for hope is, I think, a very uh, poignant observation during this time. So thank you so much for meeting with us and discussing the opening of the makerspace, taking time out of what I am sure is an overwhelming schedule the day before we open. So I wish you all the best with the launch and I will be there on day one. I just wanted to ask you one final question as an acknowledgement of the long road that libraries have traveled from their origins to now, and that's what have you been reading during the pandemic? Well, this is such a great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, I have been on a, I guess now seven month natural history um, audiobook bender, I guess we could call it. Um, I basically, for whatever reason, I've just been finding it really comforting to listen to works about natural history and to listen to works about um, huge ecological change in a lot of ways. Like that's something, the, the climate is also something that's very top of mind for people right now. And so I've been listening through books like Spying on Whales, um, I think it might, the author's name is escaping me right now, but it's a, it's a work that looks at whales. Um, I've been listening to Gathering Moss by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I listened to um, Enchanting, Enchanting Life. Um, it's about, or no, Ent Enchanting Entanglement or something. It's a book about fungus. Sorry, Dan, I'll, I'll have to look it up later. But um, I've listened to a book about octopuses. 
um, all through either the library's Libby or its um, Hoopla collections. Um, I listened to Dinosaurs in Dark Matter by Lisa Randall and just, um, just got Dinosaurs Rediscovered on hold um, the other day. So I like for whatever reason, natural history is just really speaking to me right now. And I am continuing to just kind of dive deep into that. And there's some really great audiobooks. There are even more ebooks or physical books on those topics, but uh, that's been a real source of comfort for me the last few months. Well, those sound great and I cannot wait to check them out. I thank you again for talking to us and I will let you get back to it. Thanks, Dan. Such an informative and compelling interview, Dan, and a huge thank you to Holly Arneson for sharing her insights with our listeners. I'm certainly looking forward to the tentatively named Baker Space. If you haven't checked out the Stanley Milner, do it. Also, check out past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. You can also find an extended version of this month's episode. This has been Belinda Ongaro, and don't forget to check it out. This month's episode of Shout for Libraries was written, recorded, and produced by Belinda Ongaro, Dan Hackborn, and me, Timothy Arthur. Thanks for listening.